Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about motoring and transport where we try to explain the jargon and PR spin that manufacturers use to describe their vehicles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some news stories including some updated models for Australia, Geely to launch an SUV with new battery technology, Toyota wins in rally and historic racing at Sandown. In our feature story, we go to Sandown with our boy racer, Fred Brain, where he talks about the historic racing and some significant anniversaries. And we road test the new Hyundai Palisade large SUV, which has some luxury features you would be hard-pressed to get in much more expensive vehicles. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. And now let's get this program going, which was first broadcast on the 5th of November 2022. We'll start it with the news. Several new upgraded models have been announced for the Australian market. An updated Kia Seltos Compact SUV will be arriving in dealer's showrooms during November. The Performance SmartStream 1.6-litre turbo all-wheel drive engine is now mated to a Kia 8-speed automatic transmission. The existing Atkinson Cycle 2-litre non-turbo front-wheel drive engine with continuously variable transmission carries over and is available across all trim levels. Kia has announced recommended retail pricing from $29,500 to $44,900. The Mazda CX-8 large SUV has received a comprehensive styling update and a suite of new technological features. There is now a 7-inch digital instrument display for the driver, USB-C ports for front row occupants and a remote window control system activated via the key fob. Mazda says it has achieved reductions in noise, vibration and harshness inside the cabin. It will go on sale in March 2023. The Alfa Romeo midsize Giulia sedan and Stelvio SUV get a revised look at the front with full LED adoptive matrix headlights and brand new Trilobo grille, which looks very smart. And for the first time on these two vehicles, their NFT, non-fungible token technology, and non-fungible means not interchangeable, and so the system keeps an encrypted digital and non-modifiable register where the main information on each vehicle gets recorded. Now, this information can be used to guarantee proper vehicle data and thus support its resale value. The new Alfa Romeos are expected in Australia in the first half of 2023. Chinese vehicle manufacturer Geely is the owner of several brands that are available in Australia, Volvo, Polestar and Lotus. One of their brands that has not yet reached our shores is Zika, which produces all-electric luxury vehicles. Zika has now just unveiled their 009 all-electric multi-purpose vehicle, or what we call an SUV. It will be available in China from the early part of 2023. It is only the second model under this brand name, but it is their first production vehicle to have battery supplier Cattle's cell-to-pack battery technology. Cell-to-pack refers to the direct integration of cells into a battery pack 
without the modules used in most current pack designs, such as with Tesla. Cattle claims that it can deliver 13% more power by volume than the cells Tesla is adopting and has impressive energy density figures, that is the power-to-weight ratio. The 009 has a very square, brutish look, but Geely claimed it has a low coefficient of drag to help with energy economy. Pictures are on our Facebook and Instagram sites. Cattle has already made an agreement with the Hyundai Group, which might cover Hyundai, Kia and Genesis vehicles, although the vehicle group has not made a decision as yet. Toyota has clinched its sixth World Rally Championship manufacturer's crown after the second-last event in the series in Spain. They have already won the Drivers' Championship with Cali Rovapera and co-driver champion John Helternan, which were wrapped up in the previous round in New Zealand. The World Rally Championship is in its 50th year, and in 2022 they are running hybrid vehicles in the top category. Toyota, Hyundai and Ford have committed large resources to the championship, with each of the manufacturers preparing vehicles based on their small hatchbacks. Many vehicle manufacturers have contested and won the championship, at times with some very special-looking cars, such as the Alpine Renault A110, the Lancia Stratos, the Audi Quattro and the Lancia Rally 037. But it has overwhelmingly been the domain of small pocket rockets that, while highly developed, still resemble popular vehicles such as the Ford Escort, Peugeot 205 and, more recently, the Citroen C4, the Volkswagen Polo and the Ford Fiesta. Perhaps the most successful link between rallying and the image of everyday vehicles was in the second half of the 90s and the early years of 2000, when Mitsubishi with their Evo and Subaru with their WRX showed that a four-door sedan with turbo power made all-conquering rally cars. On the same weekend that Toyota clinched the World Manufacturers Rally Championship, they also clinched the 2002 Australian Rally Championship Manufacturers title. On the first weekend in November this year, the Victorian Historic Racing Register is holding the 30th Historic Sandown at the Melbourne Sandown Circuit. The thundering Formula 5000s hold a special place in the hearts of older racing fans and will take the track along with a cross-section of racing, sports and touring cars from the 1920s through to the 1990s. Formula 5000 was an open-wheel, single-seater auto racing formula that ran in different series in various regions around the world from 1968 to 1982. It allowed engines up to 5 litres capacity. In Australia, it was typically the large Holden 5-litre V8, which did not make for a very well-balanced car, but it did make for spectacular racing with the right accompanying noise. The event will also celebrate the 60th anniversary of the MGB and the E-Type Jaguar, and the 50th anniversary of the Ford Capri V6. Our own Fred Brain is at the meeting racing his 1969 Monaro. It has been proposed that the Sandown circuit be pulled down and replaced with housing. Fred noted that the facilities have not received a lot of attention recently, but there might be a reprieve on the horizon. The facilities, having never seen them before, they're looking a bit tired and fairly old, actually. (laughs) But having said all that, they supposedly have got a reprieve for something like six or seven years. And people who are on the board of the uh, Sandown 
Racing Club, or whatever they call it. Um, they're apparently all pro uh, racing, pro motor racing, so uh, it looks as though it could uh, live on for quite a few years yet, all going well. So it might mean they, they spend a bit of money upgrading the pit facilities. The full interview with Fred can be heard in this program or on our Overdrive City podcast. And that has been the news. Intrepid racer and race reporter Fred Brain has trundled down from Sydney to Melbourne to go to the 30th historic Sandown event. He is obviously going to be very busy uh, when he races over the weekend, so we caught up with him as he arrived and registered on the Thursday, and we called him on the phone. Hey, Fred, how are you? Yeah, good, good. Uh, yep, got got down here in one piece. Everything seems to be going to, according to plan so far. Well, you are, of course, racing the 1969 Monaro? Yeah. That's the one. The event, it has racing sports cars and touring cars from the 20s through to the 90s. But I think the most spectacular ones really must be the Formula 5000s. Uh, good chance, yes. Um, I must say, I, I haven't had a good look at the program to see how many are, are running in it. But um, any show where you have a number of Formula 5000s in it, from uh, the old... Uh, I mean, what what era was that, the 70s? It would be into the 70s. They were putting a Holden V8, 5-litre V8, into an open wheelless car, which perhaps didn't make for the most balanced of vehicles, but they had those wonderful little tyres at the front and huge big tyres at the back. They made a wonderful sound, but I think that's been a bit muted now. Yeah, I think they do have to run mufflers on them. Um, they're probably still louder than your average average car, but they're not as loud as they used to be. So <laughs> I think about 12 or 14 of them running. Yeah. So you've got uh, Lola's, a March, Elfins, a McRae, Chevron's. So there's a bit of a variety there. I suppose one that's missing is a Matic, actually, when you think about it. Matic is a famous name in motor racing. I went to Oran Park and watched them practice one time. Oh, gee, I think I must have been in the late 60s. And I watched them fight their way around Dunlop Corner. And then Warwick Brown went round and he seemed so remarkably smooth, which in a beast of a car like that proves your ability no end. A couple of anniversaries being celebrated at this time. I think it is 60 years since the MGB first came onto the market. They'd still be racing a fair few of those, wouldn't they? Yeah, there's quite a lot of those appear in the program, Um, either running in the Group S, which is historic sports cars, or in um, um, an MGs and invited British sports cars category. So there's a there's a lot of MGs in actual fact. They were a wonderful way to go racing, weren't they? Oh yeah. Whack a few more carburetors on them and and fuel dual throat webbers or something, and and you felt like a million dollars. Well, they had pretty good performance anyway, MGBs. When you go back, they were sort of the uh, the I suppose the poor man's performance car, but they they did go pretty well anyway. We went around the hill climb in Queensland, Mount Cotton. When we raced some unusual cars, we raced a Toyota Prius. (laughs) And it shows you how cars evolve. We set a time that was about an MGB. 
that might well reflect better tyres, among other things. The other <laughs> anniversary, it is 50 years, I think, since the Ford Capri GTV6. They were a lovely car, weren't they? Yes, especially the V6. Had a, had a pretty good turn of performance, in actual fact. I mean, the four-cylinder ones, they were a bit lethargic, I think, but the V6s were actually a pretty good sporty car. And then when they raced them, uh, they had those um, the series where they ran in, uh, I think, mainly Amaru Park and maybe Oran Park, the three-litre series, and the Capri V6 had dominated that for many years. They were, of course, the car that... Terry had on Minder. Uh-huh. I can be so good for you. It's also the uh-huh. 50th anniversary of Fiat's X19, which I wouldn't particularly celebrate. <laughs> uh, I think our good friend Dean, who's six foot three or so, sat in one in a dealership, and the dealership asked him to leave because his head was sticking out of the top. <laughs> Wasn't good advertising for them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least he was able to get out of it, was he? <laughs> well, I think that was part of the problem too. He ended up on the ground. <laughs> he get himself out of it. Uh, right. The event is held at Sandown. Sandown is under a lot of pressure for being redeveloped. How's the circuit looking? How's the facilities? The facilities, having never seen them before, they're, they're looking a bit tired and fairly old, actually. <laughs> pit garages and carports and even the pit lane area. Not too flash. But having said all that, I was talking to a chap who said that um, they supposedly have got a reprieve for something like six or seven years. Oh. And people who are on the board of the uh, Sandown Racing Club, or whatever they call it, um, they're apparently all pro-racing, uh, pro-motor racing, so uh, it looks as though it could uh, live on for quite a few years yet, all going well, so it might mean they, they spend a bit of money upgrading the pit facilities. It's historic in a way, isn't it? So perhaps it might be like what it was when you, the Monaros were racing. It wasn't as elegant or as upgraded as much as, say, Bathurst might what Bathurst is. You haven't actually driven the circuit yet, have you? Uh, no, no, I haven't, haven't put a wheel on it at this stage. I find it a very narrow circuit. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, maybe down the main straight in the left-hand turn at the end, there's a bit of room all around there, but then you go into a right-hander and a quick left-hander, and then that big left-hander before the back straight. It's not one that you want to go three wide in. No, okay, you could run out of run out of uh, tarmac fairly quickly by the sound of it. Yeah, not that I'm one to advise you about r- r- motor racing. I, <laughs> I think I race around there in a Mini Cooper, the, the the new ones. Yep, right, right. When I got off, the brakes were smoking very heavily and uh, people thought I'd caught fire. <laughs> and your pit crew, how is Pamela? Yeah, no, Pamela's, Pamela's going fine, um, whether she'll... Whether she will attend any of the meet yet to be seen, but there's a few other people dropping in on a couple of the days, so uh, uh, all will be fine. Well, our good colleague Chris, the passionate Jaguar supporter, owner in many ways, certainly old-style Jaguars, there'll be quite a few down there, including the lightweight E-Type, which won the 1963 Australian GT Championship. It's certainly got that sense of the history it it's a good period of racing wasn't it because it's not squillions of dollars 
Although back in those days, interestingly enough, it would have been squillions, squillions of dollars for a lightweight Jag compared to anything else. <laughs> uh, it was probably up against a lot of Humpy Holdens back in those days <laughs> when you think back. <laughs> but actually interesting, it is the um, E-Type 60th anniversary. That's the other anniversary for this meeting. Ah. Yeah, so that's quite significant. That's why there's going to be a big attendance of E-Types. Ah. They are... Uh represented in New York City's Museum of Modern Art as a significant element of design. So perhaps we should uh, try and take on that and maybe talk to our good friend, artist-in-residence, Dean Oliver, as we've mentioned. He would have his opinion on that. Well, Fred, you better give us a report next week. Yeah, and I'll uh, we'll see what else I can come up with over the weekend in terms of any photos and the like. Oh, yeah, that'd be lovely. Put it on our new Instagram site and our Facebook site as well. Now, I'll see if I can do a bit of, fit a bit of spectating in between actually going in the events too. So sometimes I don't, I don't tend to spectate very much because I don't get a chance, but um, we'll see how I go. Well, you have a history of being a very dedicated person because sometimes you're just there on your own. True enough, yes, which is not that uncommon. There's a number of people that do that, but... Uh, there's always someone around to give you a hand if necessary. Means you don't have anyone to argue with. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> All right, mate, catch you up. Thanks for your time. No worries. Okay, talk to you later. That's Fred Brain, our motorings correspondent, mechanical engineer, and, of course, racer of the wonderfully orange, bright orange, well, bright orange, rich orange colour of the Monaro from 1969. Officially, the Sebring orange was the uh, colour designated by Holden in the day. So, so you've got someone to argue with. That's <laughs> uh, just trying to make it factually correct. What on our program? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Yeah, true enough. All right, mate. Thanks again. Oh yeah, Dave. No worries. You're listening to Overdrive. In the world of medium SUVs, the Sangyong Corando isn't a name that springs to mind quickly for buyers, and that's a mistake. Corando sits somewhere between the size categories with a longer wheelbase but short overhangs. Think Kia Seltos and Sportage, Toyota Corolla Cross or RAV4. It sits in between all of these. The Corando comes in three bottles with a choice of two engines and transmissions. We drove the top-spec Ultimate with a 1.6-litre turbo diesel that delivers 100 kilowatts and 324 newton metres. It drives through an all-wheel drive drivetrain and a six-speed automatic transmission. It also has outstanding economy. The Corando is also stylish, something that Sangyong hasn't been known for in the past. The Ultimate comes packed with little luxury features such as front and rear heated seats, ventilated front seats, power sunroof and tailgate, as well as a 10.25-inch digital driver's instrument cluster is configurable. But the real bonus is the price. From $30,993 to $41,990 drive away, the Corando is stunning value and leaves its competitors behind. This is a Motoring Minute. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. Hyundai has just launched their latest Palisade, large SUV, but not quite a people mover. It has quite a number of features, particularly in the safety and information to the driver area, but it also comes as one that has gone beyond being just bus-like into very much, well, not four-wheel drive, although that's an option, but into being a comfort, something like a 
tall station wagon. One of our testers has had a go of it, Evan Jones, and he joins us on the line now. G'day, Evan. Yeah, Matt, how are you? Good. The outside, how would you describe its looks? Conservative, but up to date, really. I don't mind it. It has a presence, particularly the front has presence of almost of grandeur. It's here I am. But I think that's a good thing for what it is. At the back, it doesn't look like a box, does it? It's, it, it's still squarish in shape. Next week, we will be testing the Grandvia from Toyota, which is very, very square. Yeah, no, it has some nice styling cues in it to break up the, the otherwise squareness of the back. So it, it's not obviously square. It's a good job. In the driver's seat, could you get comfortable? How was the setup? You're very impressed with that. Nice, comfortable seat. You could go a long distance in it quite easily. And yeah, all the electronic electric adjustments, both forward and back, up and down. So, yes, very easy to set up. And for memory, if you like the regular driver, there is a memory button there as well. So you could set it up and then if someone else drives it, one push and you're back to where you want to be. The passenger seat was also electronic with a fair degree of movements. That is something that was really impressive. As far as I could tell, the only difference between the driver's seat and the passenger seat is the passenger seat doesn't have a memory. But all the other adjustments are there. Very, very good. They really catered for the front seat passenger. Particularly with a car that has a sunroof, we'll come to that. If you are tall, then you want the seat to go down so that your head's not near the roof. The information around you, and firstly in front of the driver, how would you describe that? Yeah, the dash is of a... Fairly typical Hyundai style, the, the the way the gauges are laid out and designed is a good thing because they're easy to read. It makes it obvious to what, what um, mode you're in with the dials being silver in, in normal mode and fiery red in power. We didn't actually look into Eco. I, if, if it's like the other Ecos, that will be a bluey colour. You also like the head-up display. Yes, this is one of the best head-up displays I've seen. The uh, amount of data that was on there it was very impressive. It had the usual speed and what's now normal nowadays is speed limit signs. But it, when you use the uh, navigator, uh, the, the data on the nav is any, every bit as good as you would get on your phone using um, Google Maps. It had uh, when you were going to turn, it told you what lane to be in, like the Google Maps symbolic display is. Yeah, very nice. Very, very nice. Very easy to use. The other part, I forgot. Like most cars, you've got the um, proximity warnings in the in the rear vision mirrors. Well, you've got that same proximity warning in the head-up display, so you don't have to turn your head at all to know there's a car in the danger zone on either side of the car, which is fantastic. Before you even put the blinker on, I think that's one of the uh, strong features of it as well. Talking about safety in in the car, there has what has become a little fashionable, perhaps in the more upmarket vehicles, in some upmarket vehicles, the rear vision mirror. Rear vision mirror, you've got your standard auto rear vision mirror, which is really good. But then if you flick a switch and you can go to a camera. Now, at first glance, you think the camera's a great thing because suddenly there are, the head rest of the rear seats are now out of the way. But... It's very two-dimensional, as one of our other colleagues said, very off-putting. When you look into a normal mirror, everything's in 3D. So something that's 10 metres behind you appears 10 metres away in the mirror, So and your eyes are focused accordingly. But with the camera, you're focusing on a screen. That screen is, what, 40 centimetres away. That same car that in the mirror, which is 50 metres behind you, is now 40 centimetres away. 
and you, it's hard to judge the distance. Did you adapt to it a bit? I tried. I'm not a fan, no. You did like the sunroof? Yeah, it's got two sunroofs, one for the passengers and one for the driver. I've had a number of cars where you have a sunroof, which is great for the rear seat passengers and pointless for the front people. Uh, in the case of this car, because you've got two, they're both quite useful for uh, both front and seat passengers. The front one is a manual and the rear is um, motorised. Motorised for the shade. The front one, I think there's a motorised where you actually raise it up and can put some, let some air in. Uh, now, driving it, you uh, obviously tested it in the sports mode. The difference between that and comfort, was it noticeable? Yeah, yeah, it is. I must say the comfort is, is nice. It's good. It's, and if I was in the city, uh, yeah, you'd go into comfort mode for sure. It's still more than adequate to keep up with the traffic in the city. But you go into sport mode, uh, say on the expressway or into more open roads, and response is excellent. I, I can't help feeling that the, the suspension tightened up a little bit as well, which made it really nice. And if anything, it made it feel like a slightly smaller car than it is. For that, it's a good thing. I found the sport was not roaring and over compromise in terms of comfort but it had that more immediate response held it in lower gears of course in certain circumstances so that when you had to go not go like a hoon but certainly say to to overtake or that it, it was more ready or it responded more quickly now the koreans kia and hyundai who are cousins, of course, under the one conglomerate, they've done their lane keep assist very well. You found it not as intrusive as some? Yeah, being the number one fan of that thing, not. Yeah, I didn't go looking to turn it off, which basically says everything they have to say about it. It wasn't grabbing the steering wheel and trying to reef it out of my hand. There was a little light on the dash that flashed. I got the occasional beep, but as far as tactileness goes... No, I'm very, I'm very impressed. It's an, an example of the evolution of this type of technology that adaptive cruise controls used to be somewhat aggressive. They're much smoother now. You could even adjust the amount of response the car had when you moved out of the adaptive cruise control situation with a car in front of you into a free lane you could adjust that to be either average or very uh, strong acceleration or slow. The interface gave you quite a reasonable number of options, but without being too oppressive, without being too complicated. Yeah, there's a lot, and there are lots of things to adjust on the car, but with the the interface, as you said, the interface on the centre screen, it's worth when you first purchase a car to park in your driveway for an hour or so and go through it properly. And you'll only probably have to do that once. It's very easy to understand. All right, Evan, lovely to talk to you, mate. Thanks very much for your time. No worries. Thank you. You're listening to Overdrive. Audi have just released their performance SUV twins, the SQ7 and SQ8. Twins, but not identical. The SQ8 is a 5-seat version that sits a little lower and wider than the 7-seat SQ7. Both are beautifully designed with levels of luxury, comfort and safety features that exceed buyers' wants and needs. Powered by the 4-litre TFSI twin-turbo V8 petrol engine, produces 373 kilowatts of power and 770 newton-metres of torque. 
It will run from 0 to 100 in just 4.1 seconds and top out at 250 kilometres an hour. There is, of course, Audi famous Quattro all-drive system, a robust 8-speed Tiptronic transmission, as well as dynamic all-wheel steering and adaptive sport air suspension as standard. For the true enthusiasts, there are options. Oh, and they are superb to drive as well, with linear, smooth acceleration and engine burble that just sends the pulse racing. Priced from $164,100 plus the usual costs, plus options, they're actually really good value compared to what you have to pay for their equals. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Bray, Evan Jones, Florence Fuller, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>